Hi, I'm Gary Nall, and this is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Today, our theme is listening to two individuals, both of whom are well-respected in their fields of psychoanalysis and history. Professor Victor Davis Henson from the Hoover Institute at Stanford University and Professor Jordan Peterson. Now, on different issues, I disagree with him. But on some issues, I do agree with them. And I believe that we should have an opportunity to hear what people have to say about the state of the world and where, where all this is coming from. Where did all this identity politics and wokeism and critical race theory, where did it come from? Because almost all of it can be just completely destroyed. There's no truth behind it. So how then is it making laws that make it against the law not to align with what they believe? And they dissect this in a very interesting and provocative discussion. And it's not a wasted hour. It's full of insights. Again, you can agree or disagree, but this is not the information you're going to hear on any other mainstream forum. Now to our guests. Hello, everyone. I have a guest today that I've wanted to talk to for a long time, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. He is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. With his focus in the classics and military history, he's an accomplished academic professor and author. He's taught at Stanford, Hillsdale College, the US Naval Academy, and Pepperdine University. His books, many of them, 26 I believe, include The Second World Wars, The End of Sparta, The Soul of Battle, Carnage and Culture, and The Case for Trump in 2019. But I think we'll start today with a discussion about citizenship, I'll just make a couple of comments. You know, one of the things I've noticed over the last, I suppose the span of my life really, is that during my lifetime, the word citizenship seem, or citizen seemed to be replaced by the word consumer, which I always thought was a bad replacement, given that citizen has this, you know, it's got a stalwart and traditional and, and dignified connotation that the word consumer seems to lack entirely. Well, you wrote a whole book about citizenship recently, and so I thought we might weave our way through that. And you contrast citizens with pre-citizens. The book, by the way, is called The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalism Are Destroying the Idea of America. And you start that book off, well, first of all, decrying that, that destruction, but also contrasting the modern idea of citizenship of citizen with the pre-modern idea of, say, uh, peasant or, or resident or tribe. And so let's delve into that a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, the idea of citizenship's pretty recent in the long history of civilization. It, it appeared somewhere around 700 BC in, in rural Greece and swept pretty quickly. And so by the fifth century, there were 1,500 city-states. And what it was was the first time that citizens were self-governing, and that meant that they were, they were pretty clearly defined. They made up their own militias. They adjudicated the circumstances under which they would go to war. They voted for their own uh, officials. They, and more importantly, they had property rights. They could pass on property. I think that was a catalyst for citizenship the right of inheritance that the, the state couldn't expropriate or own property from the individual. And, that, mm -hmm. and then that long odyssey uh, brought us 
to, of course, the founding of the United States, and there were clear distinctions between a resident that happened to live in the United States and a citizen. A citizen alone could vote. A citizen alone could hold office. A citizen alone could leave uh, the boundaries and come back into the United States on his own volition. A citizen alone was eligible for uh, federal services or in most states, and a citizen uh, served in the military. I don't think any of those still apply, those distinctions between a resident and a citizen with the exception of holding office, and that's under assault. I know here in California, people who are not just non-citizens, but here illegally can vote, say, in a Berkeley school board election. And now there's efforts to make sure that people can run for office who are not citizens. Non-citizens serve in the military. Non-citizens actually can go across the border with greater facility than you or I could probably. And so we are a nation, we've never had this before, of 50 million people in the United States that were born in a foreign country of different statuses. Some are legal residents, some are illegal residents, some are citizens. Some come are migrants back and forth. And that's the highest in actual numbers and in percentages of the population. And unfortunately, it comes at a time when we, the hosts, have lost confidence in the traditional melting pot of assimilation, integration, intermarriage. And so mm-hmm. we're starting to revert to a pre-civilizational tribalism. I think large swaths of the United States are, are tribal now. Okay, so let's, let's, let's start approaching that anthropologically and psychologically. So 600 BC, something like that, you seem to get something like a transformation of the idea of the tribe which actually wouldn't have been an idea, right? A tribe isn't an idea. A tribe is a natural offshoot of our primate heritage. That's a good way of thinking about it. And a a tribe would have been something like an extended kin group and there was, that was bound together by our, 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 our primate social biology, somewhat akin to a chimpanzee troop or maybe a Bonobo troop. And then as we became more capable of abstract formal, form, formalization, that idea of or that reality of tribal membership got transmuted into something that actually had statable properties. And that would be the idea of a citizen. And so you get a layer of abstraction on top of that that starts to lay out technically and explicitly what it means to be the member of a group. And then along with that, you get a set of rights and responsibilities that are associated with that group, but also the possibility of expanded both expanded and limited membership that's also formalized. And so, as as the Greeks did with so many things, they took something that was part and parcel of our biological proclivity, so that proclivity for kinship and tribalism, and turned it into an explicit philosophical notion. And out of that, I suppose, developed both the idea of intrinsic human rights and human responsibilities. And that was all tied up in the notion of citizenship. Even now when you hear people talk about citizenship, they concentrate a lot more about the rights on the rights than on the responsibilities. They they do. The the big breakthrough was that a person replaced their primary allegiance to either someone that had blood ties or looked like them or the same locale, and they transferred that to an abstraction of the state. And what that meant was for the first time there was an embryonic sense of meritocracy. 
you know, and you can really see it today. I, I've traveled almost, I think, to every Middle East country except Iran, and I'm always curious when I was in Libya or, or Egypt or Tunisia, why they don't work, even given some countries have enormous natural resources. And I always would hear a refrain, well, you know, we, we hire our first cousin or we hire right. our second cousin, that there, that there is still a tribal loyalty. And what's tragic about the United States is that meritocracy and that multiracial, what became a multiracial, multireligious uh, body politic was united by a primary allegiance to the idea of America, where people, you know, where they enriched America with their food or their fashion or their art or their music, and that made American culturally rich, but they didn't import Mexican ideas of constitutional government such as they were, or they didn't bring in Russian ideas of individual liberty. They, they didn't touch the core, and that core united us. And now we can see that that's no longer true, that people are re-tribalizing and they're starting to identify with either their kin group or their ethnic group or their religious group. And uh, what's scary now in the United States is that we've seen when you have a geographical force multiplier, and we're starting to see that with red, uh, blue migration, it's, it's sort of analogous to what happened in 18 the 1850s where there was a Mason-Dixon line, so to speak, of a very different culture that bifurcated from the North. And if this continues, I think we're going to see a, a uh, sort of a traditionalist America that claims that it follows the founding principles in red states of limited government, less regulation, small taxation, and the idea of a citizen giving up their primary allegiance to the state versus the blue state model, uh, California, Illinois, New York, in which a, 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 a number of identity politics groups or special interest groups all lobby for influence. And you can see what happens in the LA City Council hot mic scene where all of these Latino council people got caught on a hot mic where they were explicitly defining the new idea of a citizen, and that was that their primary identity group was at war with uh, people from Oaxaca, it was at war with blacks, it was at war with gays, and they were angry because of their representation was not demographically proportional uh, to their numbers in the population, so they said. And I think that was a future for the country, and it's what's going on in California in the present. Yeah, so you worry about a, what, what you might describe as a reversion to this more implicit tribalism that's predicated on, well, it would be predicated on religious identity or skin color or linguistic identity or perhaps shared philosophical identity, although that would be rarer, and that that's the counterposition to this more abstractive notion of citizenship. So let's delve into that for a minute because I think we could lay forth the proposition that unless there's a higher order principle uh, that unites people either psychologically or socially, then they're disunited. And if they're disunited, they're anxious and confused and aimless and conflict-laden. Like the natural state of human beings in the absence of a unifying principle isn't peace, it's war. And so then we might ask, is there a unifying transcendent principle <clears throat> that's valid that isn't just another narrative, you know, because the postmodern critique is that all unifying narratives are, 
what would you call it, expressions of arbitrary power and domination. Power. And I don't really think that's true. I don't think that's true of Western societies. And the reason I think that's technically untrue is because there's an idea in Western society that I think is fundamentally, well, it's logos-based, it's partly Greek and it's partly Judeo-Christian, that the individual is the proper level of analysis in some real sense, and that the individual has intrinsic worth and dignity. But more, but there's more to it than that, is that it's necessary for, the, um, <clears throat> for that intrinsic dignity and worth of the individual to be recognized and set apart by law in some sense, honored by law, because the individual has something to offer to the group and that's the uniqueness of their being, let's say, and that if you allow people to be free or encourage their freedom, then they can trade that uniqueness with everyone else in freely, and that in that trade is to be found both peace and, let's say, light and abundance. And I think that principle isn't merely another narrative. I think that is the predicate both of peace and of, of economic well-being. And so, but yeah, conservatives and... Okay, okay, dude, I, I think you comment on all that. Or another way of putting it is the United States was based on an idea of equality of opportunity, that because we're not born equal or we have different life experiences or we inherit or don't inherit or we're healthy or we're long-lived or not, we don't try to even that out uh, in terms of economic recompense. We just let people... Uh, follow their own trajectories. And then we have other methods to appeal to their magnanimity. So the philanthropic, the religious, uh, the humanism. We have all these ways that if people do better than other people, we allow them to be creative and to try to bring back, give back to the society, or at least use their talents, even if, they, if it's profit-minded, to build a better bridge or a dam, rather than the alternate which is a strain in Western civilization. It starts, actually, the socialist impulse starts with the Greeks. There is a strain of that with the Pythagoreans. But the other idea, and that's what we're, I think, fighting now, is the woke equality of result, that we're going to appoint some platonic guardians and give them untold power. And in their infinite wisdom, they're going to do two things. They're going to force people to be equal, what they call equity, and they're never going to be subject to the consequences of their own ideology because they, they need special exemptions given their enormous responsibilities and their talent. And so what we see now is this bicoastal elite in the United States is starting to mandate behaviors and principles and issues and policies that they themselves would never follow and would have no intention of following. And it's based on that every single person has an innate right to be the same as another person. Or was that Aristotle said, once a man in democracy, and he feared this, feels that he's equal in voting with another man, then he feels, by extension, he should be equal in all other aspects of his life. And that was, what, that was the philosophical worry about democracy, that it was so it always evolved to a more radical form of equality. I think we're now at the end stage where almost everybody feels they have a grievance against the state and therefore they're, they're entitled to compensatory or repertory 
money or, or land. Uh, here in California, when we were discussing reparations, suddenly people were bidding in, in the Oakland City Council and suggesting that they were owed $800,000. Uh, and they had a grievance, apparently, even though they were six generations away from slavery and maybe four from, uh, they were in the fourth generation of the civil rights movement, they had grievances against people who had never had slaves. And California, had, for example, had never been a slave state. But it was that mentality. Uh, and, you know, the, a lot of people warned us about this. Tocqueville said the problem that we would face in the United States is that most people innately would rather be poor and equal than all better off, but some more better off than others. And he felt that if that, yeah, well, that's, that, was, that would be a very dangerous uh, development. I think we're pretty much there now. Yeah, well, that's, I su suppose, to some degree, why there's an injunction against covetousness, covetousness in, the, uh, in the Ten Commandments, you know, that you're not supposed to covet or envy your, your neighbor's donkey or his wife or his house. And yeah. I mean, part of the reason for that is that if no one can have anything more than anyone else, then no one can have anything at all. And that's generally been the state of humanity for the longest re reaches of human history. It, it looks very much like if we're going to allow a rising tide to raise all boats, we have to allow some people to rise faster than others in multiple dimensions. And so, and I don't see any way out of that. And certainly not the case that these hypothetically egalitarian systems of governance like communism ever produced anything that had less of a Pareto distribution or an unequal distribution than capitalist societies. I mean, everyone was much poorer, but the rich were still much richer than everyone else. And there's also something in there, you talked about identity, and I've watched this happen on the, uh, um, what would you call it, inevitable consequences of pathological uh, thought front. So. The, the leftists who were pushing for equality of outcome insisted that if there were differences in socioeconomic outcome that you could identify by group, then that was a prior evidence of systemic oppression, let's say. But they fell um, astray of a certain peculiarity with regards to group identity, which is that group identity is actually infinitely fragmentable. And so out of the initial identity polit political theorists, you got the intersectionalists who made the case that, well, you were oppressed, let's say, if you were Latino and you were oppressed if you were female, but the joint interaction between Latino and female made you even more especially oppressed. And then you could add gay to that or whatever other. And so, and what you see happening on multiple fronts in consequence is that the litany of potential ethnic groups increases, the number of them, and then the number of interactions increases, and that increases exponentially as you add more identity categories. And what that essentially means is that the problem of computing equity starts to become technically impossible because every single person's identity is so complex on the intersectional front that there isn't even a hypothetical way of deciding whether any given socioeconomic outcome is equitable. And so when I walked through that, I thought, well, Western culture had actually solved that problem several thousand years ago by pointing out that the appropriate level of analysis is the individual, because the individual has a unique identity that is in some sense a, a consequence of all their multiplicitous group identities, but singularly, what would you say, singularly representative of each individual. And so then you let individuals compete and cooperate 
in a fair market, and that's the best possible way of moving towards the right balance between equity and wealth. That's what it looks like. And I, th I think that's, that's right. And you can see that where this leads to, it, it's logical that you would end up with a Ward Churchill or Elizabeth Warren that by needs would fabricate a victimized identity. She was the first quote unquote, a Native American professor of law at Harvard on that basis alone. And then on the other realm, when you start to replace class interest or economic status with race, then the left really hit on something. I think it was, it was really Barack Obama in between 2009 and 2016. He took a rather ossified word diversity and he recalibrated it to mean we're not going to look for victims on the basis of their income anymore because that's mutable. In fact, Marxism never worked in the United States because this free market capitalism and a lot of free land in the 19th century was always a movement of upward mobility. And therefore, you would never have a, com a continually oppressed class. In fact, today, people go up and down, out, of, out and in of the middle and the upper middle classes. So what I think Obama did was he redefined race in America as not a binary between 88% white and 12% black, but he came up with this word diversity that replaced class differentiation or class oppressions or class grievances. And he said, it's 30% of the population is, we're gonna call them non-white and therefore they're diverse. And then where we ended up, it was this ridiculous situation where to take a caricature, you have Meghan Markle the Duchess, who is half black, lamenting to Oprah Winfrey, who is a multi-billionaire, about their shared grievances as being non-whites, or LeBron James uh, complaining. And so that was a very brilliant thing the left did because once they made race the arbiter of oppression and being the oppressed and the victimized, then class didn't matter anymore. And now we have this elite. Yep who says that they're not white in a particular percentage, and all of a sudden we don't really care about the, the circumstances of their home, their car, their wealth, their income. It doesn't matter anymore. They're gonna be perpetual victims on the basis that they are diverse. And the left really massaged that in such a way that I don't think anybody quite knew what was going on until they sprung it on us. Well, there's a, real, there's a real attraction to a kind of deep narcissism there. And I, I think I first encountered that probably at Ivy League schools in the US. So I'm a Canadian and not that familiar with the more differentiated class structure in the US. And so when I went down to teach at Harvard, it was an anthropological adventure for me as well as a, uh, let's call it a, um, a research-oriented adventure and an intellectual adventure. And uh, I didn't understand as much as I do now how, what dynamic the Ivy League schools played in the US in terms of, of ensuring upward mobility. And I knew at Harvard, I believe it was, when I was there in the 90s, the estimate was that 40% of Harvard undergraduates would be billionaires by the age of 40. And that was, you know, that was 30 years ago. And so that was quite a substantial amount of money then. And the whole point is, is that if you got into an Ivy League school, as soon as you got in, you were basically a member of the 1%. Now, you might have been a junior member, but you were definitely a member. And I thought that was perfectly fine because, in some sense, because the Ivy Leagues did a damn fine job 
of merit-based uh, selection. Now, it wasn't perfect. There were legacy students, for example, and you know there was a bit of play in the system there, but fundamentally, Harvard and the other Ivy Leagues had transformed themselves into from old boys clubs in the 1960s um, into highly elite intellectual institutions by the 1990s. But then what I saw too, and this was so interesting, was that being junior members of the 1% with you know, almost certain hallmark of long-term success as a consequence of Ivy League admission wasn't enough for many students and their idiot professors. They had to have the label of oppressed uh, working for them too. So you had these, this strange spectacle, as far as I was concerned, of these unbelievably fortunate Ivy League students who were offered an opportunity that, well, is really unparalleled in human history, not only benefiting as a consequence of being the beneficiaries of this amazing system, but simultaneously claiming the status of the poor and oppressed and claiming at the same time to be avatars and representatives of that oppressed group. And I thought, Jesus, you guys, like being rich and powerful in junior form isn't enough for you. You have to have all the virtues of the rich and all the privileges and opportunities, and you have to have all the virtues of the poor and oppressed at the same time. It's like that just seems to me to be a bit much, and you see that reflected in the people that you're describing who have these, this unbelievable wealth and opportunity and who yet put themselves forward as, you know, canonical victims of an oppressive system. I, I think we're going to see in our lifetime, though, the end of the Ivy League, Stanford, Berkeley cattle brand as a mark of entree into the, uh, the 1%. And by that, we're no longer into, when we had proportional representation at admissions and hiring, that was sort of the, the modus operandi until George Floyd. So 12% of the student bodies were African-American, even if they had on an average 200 points less than Asian students on the SAT, or we had about 65% white. Asians were, of course, treated like Jews in the 1930s. They were right, discriminated right. against, so their numbers would only be about 20%, where otherwise they would have been 40, and Latinos were about 12. But after George Floyd, we went into a radical compensatory or repertory admission. So Stanford, where I work, just announced their new class profile. It's 23% white, and out of that, 55, 54% are women, so, and you, you have about 12% white males. And the, hmm. the SAT, wow. to accommodate that, became optional rather than mandatory. But here was what was interesting about wow. some of the statistics. They would not allow anybody to have information about how many students that were admitted this year actually took the optional SAT. They wouldn't release that. But they did, for some wow. reason, release the fact, and I think they were proud of it, that of those very rare students, I think it's 0.1 or something, who get a perfect score, which is almost impossible to do on the SAT in math and in uh, the analysis and, of course, in co English and composition, they rejected 70% of them, 70%. Wow. And so what we're, what we're seeing, you can see it in free fall because what's happening when you bring a lot of students that were not competitive through K through 12 and almost instantly and arbitrarily you declare that they are Ivy League students, 
then they go into these classes and then the professors are in this dilemma because they either have to do one of two things, one of three things. They either have to change radically the curriculum to facilitate people that were not properly prepared, and they're doing that some, or they're gonna have to radically change the grading system uh, so that a person who gets, would have gotten a D or C gets a B or A, and they're doing that in some cases. Or Mm -hmm. a few, feel that they are going to die on the altar of standards and they're starting to grade according to what people actually earn. But when we have 15,000 administrators or administrative staff and 16,000 students, you can see that we've got kind of a commissar system and many of these are these new diversity, equity, inclusion czars. And so then if a faculty member does cling to standards, cling I guess is a good word, then he has a systemic racist pedigree because he's deliberately giving grades lower in this narrative uh, to people of color. And the result, how it all works out, I think in the end is that Silicon Valley and all these people privately, when you talk to them, they're, they're either preferring say a coder from Georgia Tech than from Stanford or right, right. themselves they're actually giving tests to people stealthily. So if you want to go to work at Google or you want to go at a startup and you come with a Stanford bachelor's degree, that no longer is entree anymore because they know that the degree is not competitive with Cal State, San Luis Obispo, or much less Hillsdale College. And so what they're right. doing is they're, they're, they're offering tests themselves, or I should say requiring it. And so I think we're... In a very brief, Yale let in 50% of its student body was white, and I think it was 55% female, so about 25% uh, was white male of that campus. And so they've deliberately taken a whole demographic, and when you, I think you wisely pointed out legacies and, and athletes. So out of that small reduced demographic are many or if not the majority of legacies. So what we've done right. now in the space of three years is pretty much disenfranchise the white working class male who had a chance to go to these blue chip universities on the basis of meritocratic SAT scores or GPAs. And they're, they're no longer on campus anymore. They've disappeared in the space of there's no room for them given the demands on this uh, identity profile. So, so we could def- let's 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 talk technically for a minute, um, so that everybody can understand what these selection criteria actually mean. So, you could define a meritocratic selection process technically. You could say, imagine you have an outcome, so you need an outcome first, which might be job performance or net lifetime productivity something like that, and you can very much argue about what the outcome variable should be, but it's generally associated with something like economic productivity. And having made that measure, so that might be income, uh, might be number of people you employ in your lifetime, um, might be number of businesses that you generate, might be number of creative enterprises that you um, engage in. There's a variety of different measures of, say, lifetime productive and creative output. And then you could say that you use a meritocratic selection process if you use a statistical procedure that has been linked to that outcome measure. And so you might say, for example, are there things we can measure that predict lifetime creative or productive capacity? And the answer is 
Well, yes, we actually know what they are. So one of them is general cognitive ability, which is often assessed with IQ tests or SATs or MCATs or GREs, standardized tests. And the other is personality um, with a, with a uh, secondary, uh, what would you say, contributor of interest. And so people who are productive have high general cognitive ability, which can be assessed quite rapidly. They tend to be conscientious, which is a personality trait, and that makes them good managers and administrators, or they tend to be high in openness, and that makes them creative entrepreneurs. And it also helps to some degree to be somewhat free of negative emotion. And those are basically the category of predictors. On the interest front, you have interest in people versus interest in things. And the interest in things types tend to be more frequently male, and they tend to pursue the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics streams. And so we actually know how to select people on the basis of merit. We do general cognitive ability testing and personality and interest, and you can, you can provide a very uh, economically valuable service to each individual and to the state at large by selecting according to those criteria because you then select people who can benefit most radically from being put with their peers and from education. And the data on this are crystal clear. Now, the alternative, I've talked to people like Adrian Wooldridge about this, and you touch on it as well in your book on citizenship. You might say, well, what's the alternative to meritocracy? And Wooldridge's hypothesis was that in the absence of a technical meritocracy, you reverted to dynasty, so it's aristocratic transmission of status, or nepotism, which you talked about already in relationship to kinship. And so as soon as you abandon the merit principle, you open up the grounds in all likelihood to all sorts of corrupt admission processes. And so the universities are gonna be wrestling with that. They already are, eh? Because one of the ways they discriminate against Asians, which is everyone's loss, right, to not, to not maximize our exploitation of the productive and competent Asians, let's say, the way they discriminate against them is by deeming certain stereotypical Asian personality traits as not appropriate on the personality front. And so, and they do that to gerrymander the admission criteria on the basis of race. And, and I think they've even, in the last two years, evolved beyond that. The old plaint, complaint against them was in this triad of the admissions profile, standardized test scores, GPA, and what they call community service or personality, whatever you want to talk about. It was amorphous. So they would go after Asian students at that with that, and they'd say, well, they're robotic or yeah. they have, they're one-dimensional. Okay. But now they've gotten rid of... Uh, all standardized tests, and they don't even make any, they don't need to do that anymore. So basically, they've upped the Asian, they have the Asian admissions between 20 and 25 on the principle that they're about 12% of the population, they won't sue if they're 20 to 25, and they can exclude them any way they want now because there is no SAT. And no. there's, and what the next horizon is, as you saw at the, the, um, I think in Cornell right now, there's a big movement to abolish grades. And at the new school, <laughs> everybody in New York, everybody wants to have an A, uh, an automatic yeah. A at the new school. And we're going, to, we're going to see that because what's happening on these Ivy Leagues very rapidly, it's almost amazing at, at kind of 
the speed of light, that graduation and admission are now synonymous. In other words, once you're admitted, right, right. and that was true to some extent in the past, when the, we're kind of reverting back to this, what you mentioned, the old boy gentleman C, Ivy League of the 40s or 19th century. And now we're saying if you get into Harvard or Yale or Stanford and you can't do the work, you have a right to graduate. It doesn't matter. And we will make the necessary adjustments. You, you have to get something for your $300,000 in tuition. And so why not go? So, so you can think about it, think about it this way. You can think about it biologically. Like I tend to think that, uh, it's a funny metaphor, but I tend to think of whale carcass. And here's why. So it takes a whale a long time to build up a whole whale body. And then if it washes up on the beach, there's plenty for everyone to eat for a while. And so you see this happening in all sorts of big organizations is that they build a brand and the Ivy Leagues definitely built a brand in the US and that brand has tremendous value for a long time because the Ivy League admission standards were so high, you could be virtually certain that if you hired a graduate, they were gonna be statistically likely to be top performers. And that was all a consequence of the admissions, the stringency of admissions policy. Very little a consequence of the quality of education, by the way. It was almost all, and all the business schools know this too. They know perfectly well that a huge proportion of the value they offer prospective employers is a 99th percentile score on the MCAT at admission for their MBA students. They bloody well know that. I've talked to dozens of them. And so for a long time, because the Ivies were so meritocratic, they could justify what they were charging and they could justify their, their, their stringent selection because there was an immense demand for their graduates, especially on the financial industries front, right? Most of the kids that I taught at Harvard, strangely enough, went off to pursue careers in finance, which I thought was kind of a shame, you know, because Harvard wasn't producing many scientists, for example, but whatever. Their cognitive capacity and their work ethic were highly valued by potential employers. Well, so now you have a pool there that's basically a brand, right? And it's value for the taking. And so because the Ivies have generated this uh, reputation of high quality, that can be exploited. And what's happening right now is a huge invasion of parasitical exploiters. And a huge portion of those are the administrators. You said, what, there's 15,000 administrators at Stanford for 16,000 students? Yes. That's hilarious. Yes. That's hilarious. There's, there's no way that it's... can last, man. So, no, I mean, it's, it's very similar to the Russian army uh, in its disastrous year in 1940, la latter part of 41, when we had, they had so many commissars that were overseeing military operations that had no intrinsic worth other than to impede and supposedly uh, make sure that everybody was a proper Marxist-Leninist, that the German army almost got to Moscow, and then, of course, Stalin stopped it. In extremists, he said, you know what, we're going to start getting people like Konyev and Zhukov and get, go back to a merit system. And what's, and it, what's sad about the university, they're adopting a, a, almost something like the commissar system where we have mm -hmm. these intrusive, intri and here in, the, in California, almost every university uh, has a diversity oath where a faculty member has to state explicitly what they have done and what they will do to encourage diversity, equity, inclusion. And every candidate uh, has to make a statement about what they have done yeah. in the past and to show their commitment, kind of like the loyal Leos, as you remember, in the United States in the 50s. And what, 
it's very, it, this uh, destruction of meritocracy is taking on all of the, the aspects in the past that were failed. So we have a commissar system that failed. We had the loyalty oath that was, that was you know, it was a war, it was a antithetical to meritocracy. And then by getting into these, on the basis of race, it's, and then not having to be subject to meritocratic performance standards, it's kind of like the British army in the 19th century, or late, especially the late 18th century, where you could buy a captaincy. In fact, right, you had right, to, right. to be an officer, right. you had to put up money. And the, the irony was one of the reasons of the startling success of the Napoleonic system was that after the revolution, they did have a meritocratic standard for officer corps, and the marshals of France for, were not all aristocratic. They were merit-based, and the French army ran wild for 15 years on that basis until it was exhausted. But the right. point I'm getting at is if, if you thought you couldn't come up with a better system if you planned for years how to destroy this Ivy League brand than uh, destroying standardized test, admitting people that could not take the test and perform at a, at a, a level that would, that would be, I guess you would say, admissible at almost anywhere else. Where else? I taught at Cal State Fresno, and, and Cal State Fresno for 20 years I, I taught there. Those standards at that time are, that I was there were, the admission standards are more rigorous than the Ivy League now. Everybody had to mm -hmm. take the SAT. You don't right. have to do that anymore. And uh, we never had people, we, it, was, it was politically correct, but we never had people looking over our shoulder. We never had students that would report us for uh, untoward language or unwoke language, or we never had a dean call us up and said, you're late on your, your diversity statement. And so yeah. it, it, well, it's inviting the, a level the, of corruption that's, the corruption of this system is just because we have these people who are writing these statements, and I've seen them. And I mean, it's it's tragic. It's tragic, if not pathetic, what they're saying. And I and when I was eight years old, I sat on a bus with people who weren't white, or on or on the other hand, yeah. when I was fifteen years old, somebody called me a name. And ever since, I've been cognizant of the racist nature of America and. Nothing, none of this has anything to do with being able to teach a classical language or build a bridge or design a coding system. And it's, it's, it's going to have consequences if it, if it hasn't already. I think it already has. Well, I know that in the UCAL system that 75% of applicants for junior faculty positions have their applications rejected on the basis of inadequate DEI statements before their research dossiers are evaluated. And so it's, well, here, here I guess is the optimistic side. So this, tell me what you think about this. So I'm starting, I'm involved in two new university enterprises. One's at Ralston College in Savannah. We're trying to build a humanities research or humanities institute there. And we had our first class this year and that went extremely well. Very, very carefully selected students. We had an applicant pool of a thousand so that we could choose 25 students and we 
We screened them in every possible manner and had a bang-up class. And so that's sort of a bricks-and-mortar institution. And we'll see how that goes because that's complicated. But I'm going to start an academy. My daughter's working on this in November. We've got about 30 professors on board now called the Peterson Academy. And we hope to drive down the cost of a bachelor's degree. We'll start with the humanities and the social sciences to $4,000 in total. Now, it's hard to replicate the social element of university, and that's a huge part of university, is the new peer group and the people you meet and all of that, and the apprenticeship element. It's hard to virtualize that, but when I hear the sorts of things that you're talking about, then what leaps to my mind in, in, in some part is market opportunity. Because the fact that students are now paying an insane amount of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, to go to an Ivy League institute that is simultaneously failing to educate them, siphoning their future earnings into the pockets of greedy administrators and ever more of them, and sabotaging their own brand simultaneously. It just looks to me like that is not a sustainable model. And you said, you know, that you believe that the, the larger companies, for example, Google and, and other companies that are actually concerned with performance still, are going to stop regarding an Ivy League degree as a brand of capability. And so that means it'll, you know, over a 10-year period or 15-year period, they're going to scuttle their own economic model. Maybe yeah. there's all sorts I think of opportunities for new education. I think there is. I agree, I agree with you entirely. There's 650,000 fewer students in America than last year and about uh -huh. two, 2 million fewer than 10 years ago. And I mean, yeah. they say it's demographic, but it's not demographic because the country increases by about 2 million people per year. And what's happening is, uh, especially I think with the Zoom uh, phenomenon during the COVID lockdowns, we're getting people like what you and I are doing or what your podcast or the Prager University that offers an alternative for autodidacts and people who want continuing education. And then we're getting a, a big, much greater emphasis on vocational education is yeah, yeah. when the lockdown happened, we weren't saved by sociology majors that were, you know, take six units over eight years with, you know, $60,000 in student loans. We needed skilled carpenters and plumbers and electricians and roofers, and they pay, and real dollars are making more than ever. So we're getting a larger group of people who say, I don't want to be encumbered by these student loans, and I'm going to have a vocational. And then as you say, the yep. third alternative are these, these schools. A, a college like Hillsdale traditionally had about 1,000 students. I think it's up to 1,600, and their dilemma right now, as I understand it, and I teach their a couple of weeks every year for the last 20 years is they are being flooded by applicants that have not gotten into Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Stanford, and they require SAT. They had already yeah, sort of been, yeah. in terms of academic rigor or admissions rigor, comparable to Oberlin or Williams or Amherst, but now they've got a real dilemma because they have this traditionalist, I think quite deservedly so, this idea that they teach the whole person. So if you go to Hillsdale College, you learn how to shoot and study the Second Amendment. You And lift are, weights. Uh, you lift weights, absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a hundred, 
percent 360 degree 24 7 citizenship idea but when you bring all of these people in that are now looking at a hillsdale because it is meritocratic and because it has high standards but many of them are are not in any way conservative and so right. what do you do if you're hillsdale when you i think they have i think they are interviewing them and you you mentioned that that's why i thought it was fascinating that you're interviewing their applicants they're interviewing 95 percent of the people that are applying and they have to now well they have a code of honor that they enforce quite rigorously at hillsdale and you know we're also in discussion with hillsdale with regard to potential accreditation for these online courses because i really like the hillsdale model and you know here here's something to think about too on the on the technology front so you know, I learned, I spent a lot of time analyzing the relationship between psychological testing and, and uh, productivity and creativity across the lifespan. And so I know a fair bit about that, I suppose. And one of the things I did learn was that part of the reason the universities have their degrees are valuable is because they, they were very careful in terms of meritocratic admission and they also have a hammerlock on accreditation. And so once you have an MBA, obviously you're accredited as an MBA graduate from a given school. And that means you had a certain peer network and a certain level of intellectual proficiency even to get into the program. Certain degree of conscientiousness to rigorously pursue the program and pass, and pass it. So the value in the universities in large part is, is nested inside the accreditation. Now you could imagine, and I don't think this is technically impossible, you could imagine a system of blockchain accrediting tests that would be freely available to people. You know, I, I would do this on a for-profit basis, but so that if you wanted to claim Bachelor of Arts equivalents with regards to your knowledge of the humanities, that you could take a set of objective tests that couldn't be mucked about with by administrators and gain your proxy by that manner. So ma- imagine this, it's, it's, it's an enterprise that I've envisioned and we're pursuing at the moment. Imagine I could gain a, um, uh, produce a data set of 10,000 multiple choice questions, say in American history. And I could do that by buying multiple choice tests from high school and university professors all across the country. Okay, now we'd have to administer them to several thousand people and then we could analyze each question with regards to its accuracy as a predictor of general knowledge domain. You can do that, you can rank order them. Then imagine you have a program that can randomly pick equivalent level of difficulty questions from that whole set of 10,000. You could set up a system that could produce random tests so they couldn't exactly be faked or cheated easily. And you could rank order people in terms of their knowledge domains with regards to those tests and you could blockchain it so it would be completely impenetrable to administrative interference. And you could steal the accreditation away from the universities. And I think that's, yeah, that's the, I can't see any reason yeah. at all that that's not technically possible. But that, that's been raised before in the United States, and that's the third rail as far as universities are concerned, because I think they suspect that given the state of education today, higher education, that a person's enter, entering SAT score may be static or actually go down after four years. Right, And right. that the idea that everybody would take an SAT as an exit exam, and it's, it's quite logical because... Remember what they said about the SAT in the 50s and 60s. This was a meritocratic device so that people of different backgrounds, economically deprived or racially, and they didn't go to competitive schools, they wouldn't be punished. So even though they got 
they got A's, Harvard would say, well, you got A's from Fresno, but it's not the same as St. Paul's. And then they answered back and said, but we took the SAT test and this student did as well. And, but when you, you get rid of all of that and you say, okay, you, you introduced the SAT because you said that there were different levels of prior education at high schools. We want to reintroduce it on the back end because we feel that there's different levels of instruction caliber, uh, quality at universities. So just as you suspected high schools were of uneven quality, we now suspect that colleges, i.e. Stanford, Harvard, Yale, are of uneven quality. And we can't, the BA would mean nothing just like you said the GPA was mean nothing unless it was coupled with its SAT score. So to get a BA, everybody has to take the test that you outlined, whether you yeah. went to school or not. And another thing, you talked about accreditation. If we could just give every student graduating in the United States the choice, you can go through the School of Education, and that's really the catalyst for wokeness, because it, it trains yep, all of our yep. K through 12 public. Or yep, you, yep, could yep. Ha you have the alternative of going and get a master's degree for one year in an academic subject, in chemistry, biology, English. I think the, the vast majority of BAs would prefer to go get a master's degree in an academic subject. And I think well, that let's, would really- Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that for a minute. So, and I've talked to Larry Arn about this, who's the president of Hillsdale. So. Um, from what I understand at the moment, about 50% of American state budgets are dedicated to education, broadly speaking. So that's an awful lot of money. Now, interestingly enough, and let's say pathologically enough, the faculties of education have a hammerlock on teacher accreditation. And that strikes me as absolutely preposterous. It's, it's, it's a form of monopoly that's, that, and there's no excuse whatsoever for it. Now, I've watched faculties of education for 60 years, and they are not uh, a credible, the faculties of education are not credible academic institutions by and large. They have been responsible for some of the worst frauds ever perpetrated on the buying public. So whole word reading is a good example of that. The whole bloody self-esteem movement, which was a complete catastrophe. Um, the idea of, of different learning styles, the idea of multiple intelligences, et cetera. We can lay that all at the foot of the faculties of education. And generally, they attract pretty damn bad students. And there's no evidence whatsoever that their so-called education training produces better teachers. They have been 100% not only derelict in their duties for like 60 years, but they've actually been, what they've done has been antithetical to the general research tradition. Very, very low quality research, most of it irreproducible, most of it based on idiot ideology, and definitely not in the public interest. So here's an idea. How about every governor in the United States just scraps the requirement to have a teaching certificate to be able to teach? You wouldn't even need a master's degree. You could, you could say, we will open up the teaching profession to anybody who graduated in the top 20% of their class. And then poof, you don't have faculties of education anymore, and you don't have these institutions. like. If you think about the idea of the long march through the institutions, the place where that's been focused most intently and with most uh, efficiency with regards to the propagation of woke ideology is definitely through the faculties of education. And the only reason they have a single cent of dollar value is because they have a monopolistic hammerlock on teacher certification. And that should be scrapped. There's a teacher shortage in the US anyways. 
And there's no bloody evidence at all that the faculties of education have produced teachers who know how to teach. We have this Orwellian system in the United States in which you can be 18 years old in May in a high school graduating and your teacher has to have a credential. And then over the summer, you will enroll for the fall in a community college, supposedly at a higher level of instruction. And the community college teacher does not need a credential. They need a master's. Right, in some right. cases, they can get exemptions. So there's no logic to it other than, than the, the self-interest of the teachers union. But I guess what I'm getting at is that one of whether it was the COVID lockdown or the George Floyd ignition of the or the acceleration of the woke movement, we're in really revolutionary times as far as higher education. And the economy, I don't think, is given the smaller pool of applicants and people not choosing to go to con there's no there's no economic rationale to support these universities in their present course. And I think there's going to be a, a radical change. Again, you can say, yeah, I agree with that or no, I disagree with that. But at least you're getting input because we don't believe in censorship. We believe that open forms as this is and has been for over 40 years, the Progressive Commentary Hour, where we bring you insights that the mainstream media is too biased to do or doesn't want to do because it doesn't want to open up that door for you to see a truth on the other side. Thank you all for watching and have a nice day.